developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you. You define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Hello, friends. This is Dr. Lynn, and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Today, visiting with us is Peter Bukowski. Peter is truly an amazing person, as you'll quickly see his power, passion, success, and influencing abilities. Today, we're going to talk about climate restoration, restoring a climate that humans actually survive long term. But let's first uh, back up for a minute and learn about Peter's adventurous and impressive life. Peter is an MIT-educated physicist and engineer, entrepreneur, philanthropist, and author. He has worked at NASA and the Fairchild Schlumberger Artificial Intelligence Lab. He's taught at MIT and developed his own machine vision company, Automated Visual Inspection. Peter holds 27 patents and is on the board of Climate Capex, a um, company to help complete the global transition to 100% clean energy by 2040. He's written a great book called Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race. He's launched the Foundation for Climate Restoration and worked with top scientists, innovators, policymakers, and so many others to create the understanding and policy needed to further climate restoration. He advises many companies, um, and it is just great to have you on being such a specialist and uh, and being able to talk to you about your expertise, not only in climate restoration, but looking at it through humanity. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Lynn. It's great to talk with you. <clears throat> known you for quite a few years, and it's a it's an honor to be on your on your interview here. Well, thank you. Just to share a little bit how I really got to know you. Um, we both take a lot of courses at uh, Landmark Education worldwide, but I remember this was I remember this vividly through the Conference of Global Transformation in April 2020, and you can remember that date because that was right at the start of the pandemic, and uh, the conference had to all of a sudden be uh, put online, and I was in one of your workshops about humanity, and it's funny, it's just not language I use, but you had asked us and we worked on creating some accountability for humanity. And for me, thinking in that broad sense was just something I hadn't really done in depth. And I, I can even remember what I came up with, that I'm accountable for the sustenance and flourishing of humanity. And I shocked myself and then sat back and go, what the heck does that mean now? <laughs> and how does that, uh, how does that show up in my life? So you know, share with us a little bit of you know an overview of where we're at on climate, and then we'll get into the aspect of 
seeing it through the eyes of humanity. Yeah. Well, Lynn, I love your story from that little workshop. Um, I, I couldn't ask for a better outcome than to have someone powerful like you discover and create for herself that, that you're responsible for the growth and flourishing of humanity. So um, congratulations. And it'll be it'll be fun to talk about that as well. Well, great. Thank you. So go ahead and uh, give us a little overview of where we're at on climate change and, and we'll move forward yeah. on that. Yeah. Well, well you know, uh, most people listening to this, uh, if you ask yourself, how do you how do I really feel about the climate? You probably won't even answer that question because as a society, we're very resigned. That is, uh, you read the reports and you hear that, you know, there are more floods, more droughts, uh, sea level is in steadily increasing, and there's no, there's no relief in sight. Now, um, and, and that's the predictable future. That is, I, I'm a physicist, and I can tell you that um, if things continue going the way that they're going, uh, we're going to have increasing wildfires and increasing wars, right? Because when people can't grow food, they will often resort to fighting a war to take over someone else's territory. Uh, that's always been the case. And um, that's a predictable future, but that's not necessarily the future that we have to have. So uh, when I ask people, well, what do you want? Uh, do, you know, don't we all want to leave a, a climate that uh, for our children that humans have survived long term that will that we have flourished in and we would certainly flourish in going forward. And once you start with that desired outcome and say, oh, yeah, and really distinguish there's what's predictable and then there's what we want and maybe we can um, and, and then l let's see how we can achieve what we want. Um, everyone agrees. Now, what's interesting is the scientists and technologists I know who I talk to about it, they say, well, we can't achieve, we can't restore the climate because it's politically impossible. And then um, when I talk to political scientists or economists and ask them, they say, well, we, we can't restore the climate because it's physically impossible because they listened to the scientists who said it's impossible. And they assume that the scientists were speaking inside their own profession. And uh, when they talk like it's impossible, the assumption is that it's physically impossible. Now, objectively, uh, I think everyone listening has heard of ice ages. You know, our planet goes through ice ages every 100,000 years, 10 times in the last million years, and it gets really cold. Um, it, the nature removes uh, the same amount of CO2 that we added, same amount of CO2 that we need to remove to restore the climate. My point is, nature's done that 10 times in the last million years. We know how nature did it. And so it, it's not like we have to invent something that's never been done. We just have to duplicate nature and do it more efficiently. And there's no physical reason that we won't do that. And so now it goes straight back into humanity. It's like, well, what, what is it about humanity by nature that uh, we don't direct our planet back to that 
uh, what I call it a safe harbor where humanity will survive. And we are, I, I'm committed, and I suspect you are as well, Lynn, committed that we are going to uh, make that turn and go back to the safe harbor. And, and a safe harbor, by that I mean when a ship is in stormy seas, the captain will steer the ship to, to the nearest safe harbor, which is a place he and the ship have been safely in the past. <laughs> Very simple. Right. You know, and, Do you and, want and to... Some, uh... Could I have you quote, because I have a quote from you about this safe harbor climate called the pre-industrial climate. Has yes. CO, yeah, do you want to give us that quote about the CO2 levels and, and you know, what yeah. your intention is for that? Yeah. So, so uh, for humanity, this safe harbor is what we had the last 10,000 years since the end of the last ice age, which allowed us to uh, develop agriculture and civilization. And simply, it's uh, CO2 levels right around 280 parts per million. And if you don't know what that means, it's just you know, the, you know, it's like what 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 is sea level? It's just whatever it is. Uh, 280 parts per million is what this what the CO2 level was for roughly for 10,000 years, and that, now it's 50 percent higher. Now it's uh, 420 parts per million, <clears throat> and that's it. That's the safe harbor, and we can get back there. Uh, so the trick. Is, yeah, go ahead. No, please go ahead. What's the yeah. trick? <laughs> the, the trick is to uh, uh, separate out the despair for the where we're headed. Yeah, I almost said inevitably headed, but we're, it, we're, it's only inevitable if we don't take action. Um, if we take action and duplicate you know, on purpose what nature does sort of randomly with the ice before the ice ages, if we do that, then we can restore the climate. And uh, the, the work that I'm doing now is finding the, the levers and knobs that allow society to have an intentional outcome rather than fighting against uh, what seems inevitable. Well, that's certainly interesting. I believe, you know, I was going to ask you, what are the barriers to keep us from doing that? And you've mentioned the political and some of the physical, but, you know, yeah. One of the things I love when I listen to you, you will talk about the possibility of um, of this happening. And, you know, we all want to live our leave our children uh, a climate that they can not only survive, but thrive in. And, you know, as we say in the Jewish religion, Lador Vador, going yeah. from generation to generation. And I had that experience uh, taking my granddaughter to Israel. It was a grandparent, granddaughter. Oh, wow. Trip and seeing the impact of generation to generation, how important that is. Not just, oh, it's nice to spend time with your kids, but seeing the impact of what we still need to share to really make sure humanity survives. And especially, you can take it right down to your own family. So, you know, what are the barriers, Peter, that uh, keep us from doing that? We know the physical, we know the political, but what is it you see that can make this successful? Yeah. So, uh, well, first I'll start with what physically, how do we do it? And I'll do it really quickly. But uh, nat nature has two methods of, re of removing the massive amounts of CO2. Um, the, law, the, the way it uses before ice ages is photosynthesis, but not in trees, photosynthesis in the ocean. Now, the ocean is for four-fifths of the Earth's area. And when plants die in the ocean, they don't rot, they sink. 
and in the deep water there's no, not enough oxygen to rot and so the biocarbon the 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 carbon pulled out of the atmosphere from the photosynthesis stays and it stays put for uh yeah, typically 50,000 100,000 years and um and then and the, the catalyst that the trigger for that is minute amounts of iron because you know plants will grow if they possibly can most of the ocean isn't green like green is where things are growing most of the ocean is a beautiful blue and we want to turn that blue back to green at least in parts of the ocean so you get more photosynthesis the the missing nutrient in most of the ocean that's blue is uh iron and uh, in phenomenally small amounts, um, sort of like about a hundredth of a teaspoon per square meter. Um, so, and, and uh, simulating a dust storm. Normally, that that comes from dust storms, and you know, taking the iron ore dust and spreading it in the right places at the right times, the right concentration um, is inexpensive. You know, globally, uh, an investment of a billion dollars would do the whole thing um, because it, it pays for itself over 10, 20, 30, 40 years by restoring fisheries because the, the green ocean, that the, the algae that grows is food for fish. And so now you, you have fish stocks re recovering quite rapidly from uh, a little bit of experience that they've had. So, so Peter, so if I could ask you, why is there missing iron, even though it's a very small amount? What have we done as a race to help uh, help the yeah. iron disappear, really? Well, uh, the, 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 it's not 100% clear, but uh, the fact that we killed off 95% of the whales or 98% of the whales uh, back in around 1900, um, has a lot to do with it because uh, there used to be just tens of thousands, I shouldn't say hundreds, a lot of whales. And um, they, they dive deep and they actually get the, the nutrients from the de depth. And when they poop near the surface, they actually bring up the iron that's needed. And so that's one of the big things that we, that we stopped. And then the other thing is, is a bit complicated, but we've increased the CO2 level in the air. And that makes it easier for plants to get the CO2 they need. And um, when plants, when plants, uh, the way plants get CO2 out of the air is it's sort of kind of breathing uh, through a cell called stomata. But uh, the, the higher the CO2 level of the air, the less they breathe and the less water they, they lose, which means that the grasses, which covers most of the land, the grasses stay green longer, and then there's less dust blowing back over the ocean because the grasslands are, stay green longer. So you know, both of those are a bit complicated. Uh, bottom line is the, you know, uh, the scientists who looked at the seafloor, um, and this is back in the 80s primarily, they discovered that uh, before the ice ages, there was a lot more iron on the seafloor, which indicated there was more dust blowing iron over the oceans. Um, you know, uh, before that, and so you know, and then they tested and indeed adding a little bit of iron, just like if you have a garden, sometimes your plants will turn yellow, and the nursery expert will say, "Oh, just give it a little bit of iron fertilizer," and sure enough, it goes from yellow back to green again. 
so it, it's it's really that simple. Is uh, physically uh, we can do that, and um, you know it might not be as easy as I say. Most things are never as easy as you think at first, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. You know, of course, that you know, making breakfast is sometimes easy, and sometimes you know <laughs> everything goes wrong. It's no big deal. Uh, so physically, it's easy, and it'll be harder than I'm saying. Um, but the the main issue is the, um, uh, the 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 science. The the experts say, well, let's wait till we have more science about it. Um, and that's an interesting thing. It's like, why do you have to wait for science since we know it works? Um, you know, uh, if you remember, you, you're the same age I am. The, in 1991, the Mount Pinatubo volcano erupted, and we had gray skies for a little bit that year. You know, had it had a large impact on the climate. Um, but and there were two impacts. One is that the 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 haze from the volcanic ash in the upper atmosphere cooled the planet by a half a degree, um, which you and I wouldn't notice, but the scientists measure it easily. But uh, the the thing that people don't talk about is that the dust that fell had iron in it and uh, fertilized a lot of the ocean, and the the CO two and it uh, caused the the uh, phytoplankton to remove about 25 gigatons, 25 billion tons of CO2. So the CO2 levels have been rising steadily for, you know, for many decades. But, you know, if you look at the curve, they call it the Keeling curve, if you want to Google, Google it, K-E-E-L-I-N-G. Um, and then if you look at the Keeling curve, which is the CO2 increase over years and decades, uh, it was going up steadily in the 80s. And then in 1991, it flattened out for a year and a half and then started going back up at the same rate again. And that was, uh, for all indications, the best explanation is the millions and millions of tons of dust from the volcano fertilized the ocean around Indonesia and absorbed a lot of CO2, which never, uh, never was, is, is presumably still in the depths of the ocean. It's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The very fine balance of what one little action totally changes the world. Yeah. 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 And what's nice is that with technology, we can, you know, we, we can optimize it. Um, uh, Just like getting the CO2 into the air was changing at at a steady pace. And with technology, we accidentally increased it tremendously. Um, The, yeah, we, we can definitely remove the CO2. Well, not definitely, but there's no reason that we can't remove the CO2 very rapidly uh, and doing it very carefully. It, you know, people are uh, often afraid that, well, wait a minute, if we're going to restore parts of the ocean um, to health, isn't, you know, isn't that dangerous, right? It does, it, doesn't that sound like taking rabbits to Australia um, I forgot what, the, what the, that was a cure for. But, <laughs> and right, and and and, uh, and the answer is what's nice about things like this is if if something bad does happen, and th- since nature has done it, you know, it happened over Mount Pinatubo in '91. Um, we don't expect anything bad to happen, but if it does, you just don't do it again. 
and six months later, everything goes back to normal, or yeah, six to ten months later. And whereas with rabbits, once the rabbits are in Australia, uh, there's maybe no way to get rid of them. So it's it's different than that. But the concern is well well earned, and uh, but it's not that big a deal. So the, then, that you know, your question was, what's the barrier? Right. And uh, the barrier is. Um, you, you talked about going to Israel with your granddaughter, and it, it's, I, I call it, uh, uh, we're in the middle of a, um, uh, a bar mitzvah, what I call a bar mitzvah for humanity, that you know, as a, <laughs> a child, your granddaughter said, oh good, grandma's taking me to Israel, no big deal. Now, for you as a grandmother, you said, you know what, I'm going to take my granddaughter to Israel. You made a decision to have something happen that wasn't going to happen, and then you made it happen. It's like no big deal for an adult, but it's not what children do. And uh, we, you know, in for you know, since the beginning of humanity, for you know a million or three million years, um, we acted sort of like children on the planet, where we, you know, the weather comes and goes, the empires, you know, the Roman Empire comes and goes, or the Phoenician Empire comes and goes. Um, and we just roll with the punches, like like children do. Um, we're now at the point on our planet that, first of all, uh, that we're one, one tribe of humanity. They were intermarrying, we travel, our culture and language crosses the whole planet. And then, um, uh, and then we have the power to change the planet. So it's time for us to be adults and plan the planet just like you planned your trip to Israel. And we're beginning to do it. And I think that's what you and I are here to talk about. That's so interesting. Be taking on being adults yeah. <laughs> in humanity. It's so great. Um, well, we're going to take a break here in just uh, a minute or two. Um, but, you know, it's curious after living through the pandemic where we spent almost a year where there were no hardly any cars on the road and a lot of you know businesses shut down. Did that impact our climate at all in any way? It did a little bit, uh, but very little, but, uh, barely measurable. There are some measures you could tell. But um, what's interesting is the, uh, the United Nations tells us we have to reduce emissions. And that was true back in the 70s, you know, when you and I were, were uh, adolescents. But it's not true anymore. That is, uh, that we passed the point where reducing emissions is going to make a measure, even a measurable impact on the climate. Um, uh, that, that point we passed 1988. So we, 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 the planet went above the level of that scientists say, that CO2 above 350 parts per million were unlikely to, the life would not look anything like it looked in the past. And we passed that point in 1988. Wow. Well, we're going to take a break here, Peter. When we get back, we'll continue our very interesting conversation on uh, climate restoration and especially looking at through the eyes of humanity. So hang on, Great. we'll be right back. Dr. Lin will be right back after this.
Can your child see, really see, more than 2020? Does your child struggle in school, have trouble with tracking when reading, or resist writing? Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's award-winning book, See It, Say It, Do It, provides parents and teachers with specific tools and strategies in visualization and processing. Improve and empower your child's learning and performance in school, sports, and play. Get See It, Say It, Do It on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Vision Beyond Sight will help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Join Dr. Lynn each week for a new exciting episode, Vision Beyond Sight. Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's book, 50 Tips to Improve Your Sports Performance, has identified the top 50 ways for you to achieve excellent results in any sport activity, enhance eye-mind-body coordination skills, achieve the mental edge, prevent injuries. This book belongs in every athlete's or coach's sports bag. Get 50 tips to improve your sports performance on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Welcome back to Vision Beyond Sight. Here's Dr. Lynn. Hi, welcome back, everybody. And we're having a great conversation with Peter Vakowski, who is a physicist, engineer, and many more things, so interested in the climate and humanity. And um, as Peter says, there is no doubt we will succeed in restoring the pre-industrial climate as our goal by... 2050. And so let's continue on, Peter, and talk about the big four of climate restoration and how do we know they're safe? Yeah. So um, when I started uh, developing the idea that we want to restore the climate, um, you know, came up with the end result, getting CO2 back to pre-industrial by 2050 while we still can. And there are, we, we came up, I came, we came up with three criteria for that, uh, for any solution. So a solution has to scale up to the level needed, which is a tr- uh, 50 billion tons a year. Uh, it has to be permanent, that is, has to sequester the CO2 permanently. And it has to be financially viable. So just three criteria. Because, you know, if uh, on the financial viability, if, if no one's going to pay for it, it simply won't happen. And um, 
the, and so the, there are only four solutions <clears throat> that have surfaced that pass those three tests. <clears throat> the first one, as I mentioned earlier, is the ocean, ocean restoration, the ocean photosynthesis, uh, usually called ocean iron fertilization. And that, as I said, has a total cost of one or two billion dollars total. So we can definitely do it once we wrap our heads around that we're going to save our save our humanity. Uh, but you always want Plan B and C for in, any important project. So Plan B is the other method that nature uses at scale, and that's turning CO two into limestone uh, on the bottom of the ocean. Nature does, does it on the bottom of the ocean. <clears throat> uh, limestone by weight is half CO2, and uh, the accumulated skeletons and shells uh, f fall, and that's where 99.9% .9 of all the carbon, uh, all the carbon on our planet is, is on the bottom of the ocean. Uh, we can do the same thing uh, if you think about an oyster. It doesn't. It's not rocket science to make an oyster shell, uh, and we can do the same thing. Uh, because the oyster shell is limestone. So that's the second of the big four. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, it's, uh, it, it's financially viable because we, the limestone is sold to replace quarried rock for concrete. And we use unbelievably large amounts of concrete, we, of rock. We use seven tons per person per year. And so replacing that with synthetic limestone uh, is, is viable because it's actually cheaper than trans, than transporting the rock from a quarry. And um, <clears throat> so that's the second, is synthetic limestone. The third is seaweed, which is a variation on the first. So seaweed uh, is about photosynthesis, photosynthesis in the ocean, and the, the seaweed, half the seaweed roughly falls into the depths, and uh, the other half can be harvested for fuel, food, chemicals, and, and so on. And that, that's how it becomes financially viable. So we have plan A, B, and C. And then the fourth one is a different topic. Uh, you may have heard about the, the methane burst that's beginning to come out of the melting permafrost in the Arctic. Uh -huh. And uh, some people who've read about it, uh, I read about it uh, 10 or 12 years ago. It was, it's a really daunting topic because the last time our planet warmed enough that the Arctic sea ice melted, uh, which it's doing now, we've lost 85% of the Arctic sea ice. Um, the last time this happened on our planet, there was a sudden melting of the, the permafrost in the shallow in the shallow continental shelf in the Arctic Ocean. And it, it, it just suddenly melted. The, the, the warm sea permeated the ice, melted it, and there was a burst of methane and a temperature burst, temperature spike, which killed about a third of the species on the planet. That would be bad for us, obviously. Right. And so the, the fourth of them is how to, how to protect against that, uh, that uh, methane burst, which is beginning. It probably won't be bad, but probably is a bad uh, metric for taking care of our species. The solution is uh, atmospheric methane oxidation, and nature does this. So uh, if you know about methane, you know that methane oxidizes. Methane is the same is the same as natural gas that you use in your, your cooking in your kitchen. And um, 
it, it oxidizes, of course, in the flame, but in the atmosphere, it also slowly oxidizes over about eight years. The half-life, the, the half-life is eight years. So after eight years, half of what's emitted will have just naturally oxidized due to uh, interaction with sunlight and chemicals in the air. And so uh, this method doubles the rate. And so it basically doubles, you know, uh, yeah, how, how the, the amount of chemicals that oxidize the methane. And what's nice about that is if the methane burst becomes serious, and hopefully it won't, but if it does, then we can increase it uh, you know, a, a little bit more and oxidize that methane as it e emerges from the, uh, uh, the shallow depths and the melting permafrost. We can oxidize it before it causes a temperature spike and before we lose uh, harvests. And that way we can keep on going. Um, the, the good side, and the huge side benefit of that is it also uh, will restore methane levels to pre-industrial levels. And that will cool the planet back to roughly where we were in 2002. Uh, and that was before the huge wildfires, the huge hurricanes and so on. So it, it's a it's a big win. So these are all, you know, the rest four restoration, uh, the big four climate restorations are things that nature should be able to do on its own. Um, but we need to do something to help stimulate it. Is this going to break the world, you know, financially, you know, country? Um, no, that, that, that's what the nice thing about uh, being an engineer and an entrepreneur. You know, we, I'm, we, we get skilled at designing the the requirements. And so the, the one of the requirements is it has to be financially viable. And, right. and to do all of these would cost two, about $2 billion a year, maybe $3 billion if, depending on how you want to do it. But that's um, about uh, oh, a hundred thousandths or ten thousandths of the world GDP. It's, it's essentially nothing. And so the limitation is, isn't financial, limitation is uh, cultural. It's, it's really hum the way humanity thinks. Yeah, a couple billion dollars a year. I mean, we don't even hear billions anymore. We're into trillions. So that exactly. seems like like gambling money that you could just throw in the pot. Um, totally, totally. <laughs> yes. totally. And, and, and we're getting there. You know, and, and the, the current work that I'm doing to get it going, because you know, at first I said, let's figure these things out. Let's figure out what technologies work. And then I you know, work with the people who are working in those fields and discovering where they're at and where work is needed. Um, and then the problem is, okay, we need you know a million, ten million dollars to finance the, the initial development. And I discovered that was nearly impossible to do because people ask the very question you ask, which is, is this safe? But if they don't ask it. Uh, they don't ask it explicitly, they ask it implicitly. And basically they're saying, why am I the only person doing this? I'm nervous, let's negotiate some more. And so the negotiations would go on for years and years and years. And so I looked at uh, how are we going to shift that? Um, and what I've discovered is that for the most part, people don't think. Um, you know, <laughs> If you ever had an argument with someone, a spouse or a, a child, you realize that we say the same things over and over. And if I can say something that's uh, sort of insulting to some people, that uh, 
you know, in science, people say, well, first we have to reduce emissions, and if we don't reduce emissions, we'll have a climate catastrophe. Well, they're not thinking when they say that. They say that because everybody says it. But we're having a climate catastrophe, and you know, reducing our emissions won't reduce the CO2 level, so it won't impact the climate catastrophe we're having. My point isn't that they're stupid. My point is that uh, most of the time we repeat what we hear rather than actually thinking. So then how do you get people to repeat good stuff? That and, is the question. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I, we actually went to uh, the Vatican and uh, you know, uh, talked a little bit with Pope Francis, and, but especially with his office. And uh, three, year, three years ago, Pope Francis actually said that climate restoration was the first person to say something publicly about climate restoration in one of his uh, speeches. And he, he said that climate restoration is of utmost importance now and because we're having a climate emergency. And nothing happened. <laughs> that is, uh, you know, it, it, it was we had a certain amount of authority there, but we didn't have the the uh, grassroots support for it yet. And so we, we kept on looking at what to do. And right now we're promoting for Earth Day this coming April 22nd, uh, the uh, Universal Days of Prayer for Climate Restoration. Now, the, the nice thing about prayer is you don't have to have scientific literature to pray for what you want. You know, True. if I want Aunt Susie to recover, I don't need to have a scientific report saying that the cancer she has has a better than 70% chance of recovery. I can just pray that Aunt Susie recovers. <laughs> and similarly, uh, there's no scientific literature showing that humans have, have uh, pulled themselves out of an inevitable extinction event um, through their wisdom. You know, there's no evidence for that in the past because we've never done it. But we can pray for that. And once people pray for it, then that um, makes statements like Pope Francis made. And we're intending that President Biden and Justin, you know, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada will make it this declaring um, a commitment for, the, for Biden to declare a U.S. commitment to restore the climate for future generations. Very simple. Boy, that is so profound um, because it gets around the some of the political, some of the you know questions on science. You know, I heard a story at the climate conference that I was at, how to help enroll people to understand that that we all need to be part of this because it's really easy to say, oh, Peter, you're the scientist, go figure it out. Um, and they told a story about two people getting in a boat for a little boat ride. And one of them happened to bring a drill to play with. And they're out on the water and, <laughs> and the guy drills a hole in the boat. And his mm -hmm. friend says, what are you doing? That's going to let water in and we're going to sink. And the guy drilling the hole says, hey, don't worry about it. It's just under my seat. <laughs> and that just had such a huge impact on me. It's simple, and, but as silly and ridiculous as it seems. We don't think about the climate that way, you know. I've got my yes. house, I've got my car. Don't bother me. Somebody else will take care of it. Um, 
And yeah. so when, when are some of these events coming up that you're talking about, you know, the Earth Day and the Prayer Day? And... Yeah, so, so the, the days of prayer are being arranged to uh, coincide with Earth Day, which will be April 22nd, so uh, 20, 18th through the 23rd. We're still organizing it, but um, we have a website, um, uh, climaterestoration.net. And there'll be there's a little bit of material there, and there will be more coming soon. With uh, where you can sign up to say, you know, I'll give a sermon or I'll I'll lead a prayer at this place or on this on this uh, interview show or something. And then um, and then we'll also have an event at EarthX in Dallas, Texas, uh, during that time. And um, then as far as getting President Biden to declare a U.S. commitment to future generations um, and other other political, you know, global political leaders doing similar things, that, that's also in formulation right now. But the day of prayer will make it much easier. That is, if you imagine President Biden making a speech like that, you know, at his State of the Union tonight. That I was going to say, would, wouldn't that be yeah, great? It, it would be great. But, you know, people would, would say, what? <laughs> but right. you know, following uh, days of prayer and a number of articles about it, then you know, uh, in in six months, uh, if or possibly even by uh, Earth Day in in two and a half months, um, it's entirely possible that there'll be enough thinking about it that that he could actually say something like that because it's something everyone wants. There's no one who says no. I don't, you know, let, let's just let the planet go. My grandkids don't deserve anything. No one says that. Well, no one. Almost no one. Means, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and so, but, you know, it, it's not in the U.S. Constitution. You know, uh, the Dr. Jim Hansen, sort of the father of modern climate science, um, he's been trying for years uh, to get the U.S. to be accountable for future generations. And I believe it's the Supreme Court said, I'm sorry, you know, the U.S. is not accountable for a healthy climate for future generations. And so, but, you know, uh, with an executive order, the president can simply declare that we are responsible and we're going to act that way. And well, take appropriate actions. Because as I said, it doesn't cost anything. It, you know, the, the, the budget... It will, I think we're talking about a $17 trillion budget or something like that. And so uh, $2 billion is uh, 10,000th of the federal budget. So it, it, the cost is negligible, but what's required is that declaration. Right. And, you know, my first comment when you said that, if, if the U.S. is not accountable, then who is? Nobody. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And the and, declaration and, is such an important thing, you know, in my book, See It, Say It, Do It. The see it is declaring. First, you have the vision, see it, declare it, and then the taking action. And you certainly have the vision and um, you're already taking action. And the declaration is what people need to hear and, and take yeah. it on for themselves. Yeah, well, that, that's, I guess, why you invited me on the show here. You pull it um, together here quite well for me. <laughs> <laughs> which is great you know we haven't and we're almost out of time but we haven't even talked about who suffers most certainly the earth suffers but our populations 
I want to talk about who really suffers most out of um, all of the climate issues here. Yeah, well, it's um, uh, I, I worked with I've been working with indigenous people um, the last six months. Just politically, that's a, a very good way to get in. And one of their leaders said that, uh, at the COP meeting uh, in November in, in Egypt, he said, the only climate justice is climate restoration. It's the, the poor are always the first and the most impacted by climate change. And that's the, the beginning and the end of it, that uh, the poor are the most impacted. You, know, you and I being upper middle class, we can move. You know, if I lived in Florida, I would be planning to move out of Florida you know, in the next few decades because of the rising sea levels. Right. <laughs> that's difficult for the poor. Well, so, living in Colorado with all the cold and ice, I have a friend who's a podiatrist and he's been so busy, I hate to say, removing feet and toes because it's Ooh. been so icy and wow. people on the streets um, don't uh, have appropriate shelter and get frostbite. And so yeah. you see it on both spectrums, too hot, too cold. Yeah, you know, I think the best answer to your question of who suffers the most, it's future generations, yeah. right? As you know, one, my book is uh, Climate Restoration, The Only Future That Will Sustain the Human Race. I urge everyone to buy it and read it. It's a quick read. My co-author is a really good writer. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm getting better. And, I think that's um, great. <laughs> uh, it, it, there's a chapter in it about uh, restoring also a sustainable population. The global population now is 10 times higher than that sustainable steady level we had before the Industrial Revolution. And the reason it went up you know, is not so much because of food, because you know, we don't die due to lack of food. Very, 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 very few people die due to lack of food. Lack of water, yes. Lack of food, very few. Um, uh, the reason the population went up is we we tripled the child survival rate that we we discovered how to keep young you know, babies uh, alive. And for most species like ours, chimps and bonobos, one, less than one out of three uh, children born survive. And that's how nature keeps every species in balance with resources. The number of Acorns that grow into oak trees depends on, you know, it's very low, but uh, it depends on the environment. And when the environment is good, more grow. When it's bad, they don't grow. Uh, the same is true. Then we decided that we didn't, as humans, we don't like our children dying. You know, and Lynn, you and I worked with the Hunger Project to uh, in increase child survival. And the, what we forgot to do was to make sure that we reduced birth rates correspondingly. So we tripled the survival rate. We tripled the number of adults who survived. <laughs> and so we had a population explosion. And well, so, Peter, yeah. I hate to cut you off here. We are out of time and we could go on forever, but I yes. just want to acknowledge you. And as you mentioned, we're at the bat mitzvah of humanity. Yes. And I made the joke, do we need to bring presence? And yes, we need to bring your presence to being accountable for what's going on in the world and taking action. Thanks for who you are. You're such a visionary and I, uh, you've inspired and touched my heart. Uh, I thank you so much. And um, our listeners can find all the information about you on our, our notes and we'll see you soon. Thank you, Lynn. This is a great pleasure. 
Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.